Chuck Ellis recently tweeted, Dear past self, why didn't you download the NPR One app sooner? Don't deprive yourself of audio bliss. Also, don't eat that cheeseburger. Thanks, Chuck. NPR One is ready to make your commute, waiting in line, or waiting for a cheeseburger better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store, and now ask Alexa to play NPR One. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Ray Suarez, in for Jesse Thorne. Walter Murch is a Hollywood sound editor, and not just any sound editor, he's one of the greats. Name any Francis Ford Coppola movie, for example, and you've probably heard his work. Like anyone who's been in the game for as long as he has, he's learned some tricks of the trade for working with directors and actors. He remembers one day he was overdubbing some lines with Coppola for The Godfather Part Two. Oh, and the other person in the room? Marlon Brando. Suddenly Francis uh, looked at his watch and said, well, I, I have to leave. Uh, I think it's going great. You guys finish the film. Suddenly I was alone in the room with Marlon Brando. I was 28 years old or something, and Marlon, Marlon Brando was Marlon Brando. And uh, we finished the, uh, the reel that we had been working on, and then we had to wait five minutes to put up the next reel. And in the dark, he suddenly said, people say I mumble. And so that was a hot potato. I sat there for a, a few seconds thinking, what's the right answer? And I said, that's right, they do. They do say you mumble. And he thought for a second, and then he said, they're right, I do mumble. <laughs> it's Bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk with Walter about his long career making great movies sound better and about his other lifelong passion, astrophysics. When I'm working on a film, uh, I'm working 12 or 14 hours a day, and when I'm trying to get some sleep, I want to go as far away from film as possible so that I can just stop thinking about it for a while, and my drug of choice is science books. But first, I'll talk with Desus and Marrow. They're a really, really funny duo from the Bronx, New York. They recently turned their hit podcast, The Bodega Boys, into a brand new TV show on Viceland. It wasn't an easy transition. To make the jump from being funny on Twitter to being funny on a podcast is one thing. To make the jump from being funny on Twitter to being funny in front of a camera is a whole not- We're talking the difference between shooting layups in your driveway versus playing basketball on an Olympic level. Plus, I'll tell you about the HBO show that I just can't stop thinking about. And before you try to guess what it is, let me just tell you. Yep, it's the young Pope. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Ray Suarez. My first guests this week are Desus and Mero. Born Daniel Baker and Joel Martinez, the two started working together in podcasting, first as Desus versus Mero, then the Bodega Boys. It's everything that's great about podcasting. It's irreverent, improvised, completely sincere, and totally hilarious. Now, just a few months ago, they've made the jump into TV. Desus and Mero is the flagship late-night talk show for the new cable channel, Viceland. They get great guests like Rachel Maddow, Fat Joe, Yankees pitcher CeCe Sabathia. One of the things I really like about the show is the willingness to have a frank and funny conversation about race, even when it comes to sports. This clip is from the episode that aired the Monday after the Super Bowl. And some background if you missed the game. The Patriots' Juliet Edelman made an amazing catch to help turn the tide of the game and give the Patriots another championship. On a show like ESPN Sports Center, that would have been pretty much it. But Edelman is white, and he plays a position where a lot of players aren't. Look at this catch. Fam, this is like, oh, summoned all the racism in the world. Babylon team. Babylon team. That boy was held in the air by white privilege. Okay? I'm not falling for the shenanigans. Yo, look, look at, at it. Look at this. Look at it. Right there. It's like, what about her emails? Yeah. Yeah. 
Thesis and Marrow, welcome to Bullseye. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, buddy. We're here. <laughs> the show has been on for not that long, right? Still pretty new. Yeah. Sixty-one episodes. Sixty-one episodes. Just wrapped sixty-one today. Mm-hmm. You know, still new, still fun to do, still pretty fresh. Yeah. Four nights a week. It's tough. I, you know, yes, the world keeps throwing up new things to talk about, but you got to churn it out day after day. As, yeah. as it, but you know what? We've both had much worse jobs. Yeah. So when people are like, it's tough, I just remember when I used to have to collect dead rats for a living at a Bronx mechanic. Yeah. And I say, you know what? This is actually not that bad. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you set the bar there, yes. yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> like any superheroes, you guys need an origin story. What's yours? <laughs> Summer school in the Bronx, man. We briefly cross paths and then like the internet does. It brings you back together years later, and we kind of like reconnected on Twitter, and then through talking, we realized that we actually knew each other. Think of it as a Brokeback Mountain Bronx High School edition, but yeah. with the less sex. Yeah. But basically, when we first met in like summer school, we did not know we'd ever like cross cross paths again, let alone be on TV. But we just took a we ran in different circles, and we knew of each other. I was like, oh, there's that guy there. He was like, oh, that's that guy there. Yep. We're funny on the internet. We talked about the same topic. So generally, if something Bronx related popped up on Twitter, we both have comments on it, right. and people really enjoyed the banter there. From there, it went to a podcast. Podcast went to a TV show. Boom, bang, bing. Now we're on Vice Land. We're in your homes four nights a week. So summer school, I guess you guys were such good students, they wanted you there all year round. Yeah, all year, of all course. Year. Yeah. Couldn't leave. Actually, yeah, the worst the thing in the world is... actually is going to summer school for gym. I actually went to summer school for <laughs> for chemistry, for chemistry because I was not good at chemistry. But there's a lot of people that go to summer school for gym, believe it or not. Also, summer school is one of the few places you're guaranteed to have air conditioning in True. New York City. So yep. if you had to go to summer school, it wasn't the worst thing. Shout out to Lehman High School for actually having air conditioners. Because mm-hmm. I went to D. with Clinton High School, and they did not have air conditioners. Lehman High School you know by White Castle. Shout out to, shout to the Lehman Lions, my you know alma mater. Now, Desis, did you say you once picked up dead rats for a job? Did I hear that right? I've had almost every possible job a person can have in New York City. You can ask Meryl. Every day I come up with a new job that I've, wor- <laughs> I've worked. I've had everything from high-level computer programming jobs doing encryptions for credit card transactions all the way down to collecting dead rats in a mechanic, uh, a car mechanic on Webster Avenue in the Bronx across from Twin Parks East projects shout out to king bear that's where that was the name of the mechanic shop what happened was an exterminator came through and laid out uh they had a huge rat problem when i say huge rat problem i mean numerous rats and also very large rats large rats that could kind of push uh toyota camry to the side when they were running and it was the middle of the summer the exterminator put down rat poison it was a huge it was like a warehouse and so it's 100 degrees we're in the middle of a heat wave and there's just this overwhelming stench of dead rats all over the place and the owner comes out with a compound bucket and a shovel, and he says, you need to find the dead rats around here. And I thought he meant there were two or three. By the end of the day, there were like eight dead rats. That was me. I got my bucket full of rats, and I went home, and that job aged me 14 years in one week. Now, when you negotiate up front for that, is it by the rat or by the hour? Or it's is even, like, no, here's, here's where I blow your mind. I was not legally supposed to be working that job. That was my father's friend from Jamaica owned that thing. There was no working paper assigned. There was, like, no W-2s. I was working off the books. And at the end of the week, he gave me $60. And I had been working from almost 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. And I walked off the job. I was so mad. I was like, I'm never coming back here, which was a huge embarrassment to my father because that showed I did not have the Jamaican work ethic. But I was like, I was not getting paid a fair deal. Turned out that $60 was actually for my bus fare for the next week. But even then, I had too much pride to go back. And I was like, I, I, <laughs> I felt I had more to offer life than just picking up dead rats. And I think me being interviewed yeah, I could, at MTR. I could see the it. garage owner, you know, saying, you know, what's the matter? You get to work with animals. Yeah. <laughs> I also animals? I wanted to know what he was doing with the rats because he was like, don't put them in the trash. I have something else for them. So <laughs> he's, he's I don't know if he's selling them, if he was making furs. <laughs> Secondary market. Yeah. What did you learn about how to be funny on Twitter or on the podcast? And how does that translate to being funny in front of a camera? Uh, well, being funny, anyone could be funny on Twitter. Because you can sit in a dark room and not have to make eye contact with another human. 
And you problem, can think about a tweet for 20 minutes. You can workshop a tweet. You know what I'm saying? Like, but to make the jump from being funny on Twitter to being funny on a podcast is one thing. To make the jump from being funny on Twitter to being funny in front of a camera is a whole no- – we're talking the difference between shooting layups in your driveway versus playing basketball on an Olympic level. And that sounds very gassed, but what we do, it takes – it's for us, it seems effortless. It seems effortless. But it's – like, we've been doing it for so long, people forget that you're standing in front of a room full of people who are just sitting there like, all right, make me laugh. You know what I'm saying? Like, some mornings you do not have it in you. Some mornings you do not want to crack jokes. You just want to be grumpy and sit there. But you have to make the jokes. You got to listen. You got to make the donuts. And it's easy to do that on Twitter because you can have a bad day. You're not getting paid to tweet. But then to make a podcast and then do the podcast every week and be funny every week and not have a bad episode. And then to add to that four shows a week, you know, like... It takes some time. It takes a while to get into that groove and to have the chemistry we have to t- try to be funny. Like, not try to be funny, but achieve being funny almost 24-7, it seems like. It's Bullseye. My guests are Daniel Baker and Joel Martinez. The two host the late-night show Desus and Mero. You can check it out now on Viceland. You're working in a, in a genre and in a, a space that didn't even exist, practically, until you guys were and along with some others, inventing it. I don't, With a media landscape mm-hmm. broken up into so many little pieces, what, what is success? How do you even measure it? Just making that, I feel like for, for us, like the success, we feel like we attained success like when we made that jump from like the internet to television. You know what I mean? And then, you know, being now on this deal with Vice, doing a show that we're doing like, like autonomously like yo this is what we're doing and it's it's never like a there's never any bickering with like production like yo we're gonna do this we're not gonna do this to me that's success autonomy getting paid an amount of money that you think is worth what you're doing and then just kind of make it getting to create on your own terms yeah twitter is not you know like a lot of people do not get longevity from twitter or from going viral like that's uh what's her name the werewolf mom was it the chewbacca Chewbacca mom Mom. you know like (laughs) You can go viral with a hit once, yeah. do that again, do that three times, do that four times. We basically went viral and stayed viral. You know, it's not like we didn't accidentally end up on the Ellen show doing the nene with Hillary Clinton. So um, do you go in with a plan? You must go in with a plan. Uh, there must be a sort of roadmap for the show. Or? The roadmap for the show is basically is is we get there in the morning, me and Jesus and the crew on the show, Victor's shout to Victor Lopez. He's there, and we just, it's literally, we sit around and talk about what we were interested in that happened the night before or is happening right now, and then just kind of distill that into, you know, a run of show that, that we then take and, and use, like, arbitrarily. Like, we could use stuff on there, we might leave some stuff out, but it really is just coming in in the morning, talking to a group of pals about that you're interested in and then making it into a TV show. And to call it a run of show is a, it's a bit formal because it's yeah, very loose. Yeah. It's like, they'll basically show, tell us what assets they have available for whatever story we want to talk about. And there's not necessarily you have to use those assets. There's no necessary, there's no point A and point B. It's not like start here and end here. Yeah. To talk about whatever, it's up to them to edit it. So we try to leave it loose enough that it can be edited in any way. It doesn't have to follow any. We never say, okay, we're doing a Trump story, this story about kissing polar bears and this story about the car crash. So it's very loose and it's very free flowing. There's almost it's not there's no thought to it, but we just walk in and we just kind of just record for two hours and the show is there. And the idea of research for the show that's kind of funny because there's almost no facts or yeah. it's like go with your gut. Yeah, facts lot, don't matter. There's been some very clearly uh, I want to I want to don't say alternate facts. I want to say straight up lies oh, and oh. slander have been stated at times of the show. But you know it's stead with a good heart. So that's why we can't be sued. <laughs> well, you know, I was watching, and um, you guys were talking about uh, Bob Marley's birthday, and it, mm-hmm. it was apparent to me that this had been a deeply researched subject. Let's take a listen. <laughs> Shout out to Bob Marley. He's been 72 today. That's right. Burned one in his honor. He was killed by the American government. Right. Yes, I said that about other people last week, but it's true for Bob Marley as well. They killed him so that white students at NYU could put a poster of him on the wall, and that's the only reason they that's killed true. Bob Marley. So go to every... I didn't fully flesh out that theory, but I'm just throwing that out there. Shout <laughs> to Bob Marley. He was a beautiful musician, great honor of Jamaica, and now all you guys think of him is a pothead huh? and dirty white kids with dreads. So... I mean, it's the most... <laughs> yo. Am I, am I, was that problematic or was that true? Yeah, it's true. Are you spleefing tonight when you... 
chief in your keef. Yeah. You pull out the acoustic guitar, you, you know go on I mean? the quad. Take your shoes off first. Right, after the hacky sack, and you play One Love. You know what I'm saying? I forget, it was some protest in Astor Place. No, what's that? Union Square. Mm. And they were doing an acoustic version of One Love, and the whole crowd was singing along, and I was like, this is terrible. Oh, <laughs> this is <laughs> this. I'm Jamaican. Break it up. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Desus, you know, I, I really appreciated that you tried to do a little fact check on the fly. Was that problematic or was that true? You you wanted to get down to the bottom of it. You know what? Uh, I want to say that's true for the sake of I have to teach these devils and talk about what's really happening. But no, that was, I feel like that kind of joke, if you're not familiar with our show, you'd hear that. And you're like, that's not funny. That's pretty much borderline racist. But once you watch the show, you kind of get the temperature of the show and the tone of the show. You realize that's clearly a joke. Like, I don't really think the U.S. government killed Bob Marley. Also, Jesus is Jamaican, so he thinks that he can just make up facts about Jamaican people and you have to just accept Who, it. Who's going to check us? Yeah, we who's going to no, check we have, we have no fact board in Jamaica. <laughs> There's no fact board in Jamaica. You don't need that. Ziggy Marley's the prime minister of Canada. Okay. Fact check that. doesn't matter. You, don't, you can't. But there's um, a little zing, mm-hmm. a little shot to the ribs, a little poke of the finger. Now, with that other stuff about the... Kids with the dirty feet and, NYU <laughs> and, and the bad dreadlocks. And your dog in my school, but I'll, I'll set that aside. Well, you know, that's actually funny because my parents were the first people to point out to me that who Bob Marley actually is and was in Jamaica and how he's viewed down there and the vision that Americans have of him is so wild and distorted that that joke, it seems like a very throwaway joke, a very hee-hee-ha-ha, but if you actually look into it, most people do not know anything about Bob Marley other than One Love, Weed, and that poster in their dorm room. So that kind of, and then you remember SNL had that skit, what was it, Ras Trent, about mm-hmm. the kid, and he had, he was a white kid with dreads, and he had, like, money from his parents, and he was living at NYU, and that's usually the idea people get when they think of Bob Marley. That's just kind of the joke I was going for there. I hope he came across. <laughs> and It works. It works. I was binge-watching and thinking, I guess everybody can get a kick out of this, or nobody, I'm not sure, but there is no apparent target audience. And if there's anything that's going on in culture right now, uh, it's people sitting around a table trying to figure out the exact demographic profile of who that listener, consumer, viewer is, and you guys are not playing that game at all. No, not at all. No, we're just doing what we want to do, you know what I mean? And it, it's actually been a p- really pleasant surprise that we don't have a very, like, yo, this is our demo. You know what I mean? Like, it's never who you think. You think uh, it's, like, these the 15-year-old kids on the bus listening to hip-hop, and it's not. It's the 54-year-old driver on the bus. Yeah. We have Trump supporters who love it. The, they're like, oh, oh you, you're, you're, ro- you're busting his chops. I love it. I wish you guys would lay off Trump a little bit, but other than that, oh, I love no, the I show, love guys. It. Well, you're getting to the bottom of his uh, of his beautiful relationship with Vladimir Putin, and uh, almost sounding like a serious news show. Let's take a listen. Yo, America's lying boyfriend, uh, Trumpito, started off this morning with a Fuego tweet saying, "I don't know Putin, and the haters are going crazy." Low key, you know what I'm saying both of those would be incredible hooks for rap songs. That's true. Like, I don't know Putin. 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 But also, your man's engaging in whose man's is this, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, talking about Obama. First of all, get off Barry's He did the, like, he did the wild shift. He's like, I don't know Putin. I have no deals in Russia. I don't know no named Keisha. The haters is going crazy. But your man Obama, uh-huh. he can make a deal with Iran, who's the number one in terror. Break, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. At, yeah. at one point, Desus, you say, you know, people are saying, stop talking about Trump, but we got to keep talking about Trump. Well, he does something interesting every day. Every it? day, yes. Yeah. It got to a point where we were even like, all right, man, like, we're talking about Trump a lot, but it's not, we're not, it's not even, we're not even digging for stuff. You know what I mean? Like before, like Daily Show had George W. Bush and he was somewhat a regular politician. Like this guy's a totally different beast. So back then it was like they had to dig for stuff and talk about policy. This guy is, is tweeting and making fun of people. And like 90% of the stuff that we get on him about isn't even related to policy. And the guy's just a goofball too. Like he's a reality star. You know what I mean? So I have a very hard time viewing him as anything other than that. You know what I'm saying? So like everything that he does, I'm I'm looking at it like, from the lens of this guy used to be tell people you're fired on a TV show every night. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and now he is the president of the United States of America.
We'll finish up my conversation with Desus and Mero after a short break. They'll tell me about why, of all the edgy stuff Vice puts out, their talk show gets a great big disclaimer at the beginning of each episode. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Missing Richard Simmons, a new podcast that follows filmmaker Dan Taberski's search for fitness guru Richard Simmons. It's three years since Simmons disappeared, and Dan Taberski wants to know why. He talks to regulars from Simmons' exercise class, as well as fans, former friends, and celebrities to better understand who Simmons is and what happened to him. Subscribe now to Missing Richard Simmons on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast they'll love. Right now, think of a friend, your mom, anyone you care about. What podcast would they really love? Got it? Now do it. Tell them about it in real life or on social media. And if they don't know about podcasts, show them how. Tell us what you recommended with the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-Pod. Tripod. Get it? And thanks for spreading the word. It's Bullseye. I'm Ray Suarez, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Desus and Mero. The two created the hit podcasts Desus vs. Mero and The Bodega Boys, and their new talk show debuted on Viceland this past October. The, um, the local references. Mm-hmm. When Fat Joe is, is talking in, like, total surprise about hearing birds chirp in the Bronx. Yeah. I'm, I'm laughing my head off because when I was a teenager watching Woody Allen movies mm-hmm. and this hardcore New York references and everybody, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in Manhattan so everybody in the theater would laugh and I'd be sitting there thinking, how's this going down in Pepper Pike, Ohio? Right. Are they laughing at this in Council Bluffs, Iowa? I don't know. Do they or do they laugh because they think that something's funny and they kind of get it, but they don't really. But it's kind of funny. Do you even care about that stuff? No, not at all. I, I'm personally not at all. And I feel like people use context clues. I mean, it's it's comedy you have to work for. There's yeah. there's one level you'll get where it's just like I'm passively listening to this. This is funny. I get it. And you you know, there's some references you don't get. And I think that happens a lot with our podcast and the show. The first couple of times we'll make a reference to something, you're like, I didn't really get that reference. I didn't know what they. Were. You might turn on the closed captioning and you see something. You're just like, I don't know if that was a place or if that's a thing. No need for me to ever Google it or whatever. We might mention it again. And now in your head, you're like, yo, what is, is that a place? Is Is that a thing? What the hell is a chopped cheese sandwich? So probably by the third or fourth time, you're like, okay, let me Google this so I'm really, I really understand the references they're making. And therefore I can get a better appreciation of the humor. We get a lot of people who say, you know, I don't, I'll never go to East Tremont. I don't know anything about Houston Street in New York City. But when I listen to, your podcast, I feel like I'm on the two train. I feel like I'm on the six train. I feel like I'm walking through that terrible tunnel that connects the B and the L train. And I think that's another reason people like to listen to us because we definitely sound like we're from that New York that people wanted to grow up and move to. Not this new, gentrified, safe, like don't get stabbed yeah. in Times Square uh, New York that exists now, but the little scary New York that used to exist in the beginning of Law and Order when the cop cars were still blue. Yeah. So we're able to we give you that little that rough edge of New York, and you get to listen to it from the safety of your own home in like I don't know Iowa. And yet, there are some people who romanticize that old, scary, terrible yeah. New York. Oh yeah, where you know, which is. Over- which is funny because as people who grew up in there, that New York was not fun to live in. I grew, I remember as a child looking out the window in the Bronx and seeing constant fires every night back when the whole Bronx was burning thing was happening. And because I was so little and I did not understand, my father was a photographer at the time. So he'd go out and take pictures of the burning buildings. And in my head, I assumed my father was an arsonist. It was burning down half the Bronx <laughs> alone on his own. But I remember, I remember in the morning, like the smell of the fire, and we had a German Shepherd, and we play it in the rubble that a week ago used to be a six-family apartment building across the street from my house. Like that was not a fun time to grow up in the Bronx. That was. But when you see, you'll see these stories now, and like they they make everything. The early '80s in the Bronx was fun, and we were all break dancing in the street, and it was it was not fun. It was a very scary time to deal with and to live through, and that kind you can kind of hear that gruffness 
in our voices and our stories. And also, I feel like the Bronx is the last borough to they're still kind of recovering from that part of its history. So there's still definitely that feeling of the old New Yorkers still... When you talk to New Yorkers in the Bronx, they still have those memories. And there's still a lot of reminders of the old New York. It hasn't really gone anywhere. Can you see the change, though, finally sticking its fingers up from Upper Manhattan across the Harlem River up into the Bronx? Oh, yeah. Uh, It's pretty terrifying. A little thing called the Piano District, which was also... It's also was called Sobro, which is also originally was South Bronx. To see... To go there and see, like, luxury condos and cafes on the street and sidewalk cafes on the street. And you're like, wow, this is great. Finally, the Bronx is on the rise. But then you see that these same stores and these opportunities, what looks like opportunities for the Bronx are actually pushing very poor residents out of their own neighborhoods. The real Bronx is going to get washed away in just like overpriced condos and cafes. So you see it and it kind of breaks your heart, but you can't, it's hard to stop gentrification. I always felt safe though in the Bronx, man, because like I always was, I would always like steal myself like, yo, the Bronx will never get gentrified because if it's, it's the lack of accessibility to lower Manhattan and blah, blah, blah. And this, because Brooklyn was ripe for the taking, bro. Because you could get from Brooklyn downtown in like a blink of an eye. But from like certain parts of the Bronx, man, it takes you forever to get into Manhattan and Brooklyn. So I was always like, man, we're good. We're safe, blah, blah, blah. But the South Bronx, yeah, they started to kind of like dip their toes in there and like that. And I, I doubled down on my, yo, the Bronx is safe because I was like, yo, they're starting in the literal worst part of the Bronx. Like, the South Bronx is, is the part of the Bronx that, like, even people from the Bronx are like, yo, we going to a party over there? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> word? <laughs> uh, who's going? You know what I mean? Do they have a weapon? You know what I mean? So it's like... Maybe it's somebody... time to lay off that the Bronx is really safe stuff. You know what I mean? Down. Let's, let's talk a little bit about um, culture, a little bit more about cultural references, because I, I got a real kick out of um, you basically taking the audience by the hand Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, leading them along to something called Héroe Favorito. Héroe. Let's listen. Yo, Middle America, understand something. Uh, the, the they got world... put the wild dramatic acoustic guitar. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> America, the world is bigger than you, Iowa. I'm sorry. <laughs> we f***ed you, but we're bigger than you. And there's a lot of people that speak Spanish, and they need their own Drake. Romeo Santos is their Drake. You know what who I'm saying? Was, who would be the white equivalent of Romeo Santos? Uh, the guy from Dashboard Confessional, probably. <laughs> Right? What? <laughs> so now what? <laughs> what? Is that Kenny G? <laughs> Kenny G? Kenny G. <laughs> What's that guy's name? So that was about Romeo Santos, obviously. Now, a lot of people probably haven't heard of Romeo or his original band Aventura. He's a singer. He's got Puerto Rican and Dominican parents. But when you use someone, you talk about someone in the show like Romeo Santos, you're taking a lot of the audience someplace new but you're kind of using the familiar to do it. Yo, for sure, man. Listen, Jeff Sessions just got, uh, you know, activated as the evil leader, attorney general, and he's very anti-Dominican, and I'm the antithesis antithesis of that. You know what I mean? I'm very pro-Dominican. I'm very proud of my roots. I'm very proud of my culture, my heritage. So I just am blowing the trumpet everywhere I go. And uh, I feel like, you know, people... You know what it was? A long time ago, uh, a kid, this Italian kid came up to me, and he was like, yo, what are you? Are you are you black? And I was like, uh, I was like, I don't even know what that meant because I'm like six years old. I'm like, I'm Dominican. And he was like, what is that? You know what I'm saying? Nobody, and he didn't even know what it was. So I'm like, all right, so I'm going to teach y'all what it is to, to be Dominican and have this swagger and this, you know what I'm saying, limitless flavor to, to your whole being. Wow. <laughs> limitless flavor to your whole being. That's right. That's what we do. You know what I'm saying? I- but yeah, no, I mean, like, I think... I'm Again, Puerto like, Rican. I'm sitting here getting paler as you speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what it is. As a Puerto Rican, you already know. Like, you bring your culture with you from your, you know, your motherland, and you want to just put people on. You know what I mean? And if you're from Iowa, you have no idea who Romeo Santos is. Maybe you saw that episode, and then you went and you listened to some early Aventura, and your life has changed now. You know what I mean? And now you went and you bought an acoustic guitar, and you're working on your jams. When you log on uh, to Viceland, yeah. and it's, there's a disclaimer. Now, here's Viceland. You know, our, our brand is Edge. Right, right. And even on Viceland, they got to say, the following program does not reflect the opinion of those at Viceland. You think, uh-oh, what are Uh-oh. these guys going to say? What are they going to say? They contain adult language. 
Viewer discretion is advised. But this is my thing. Like, my whole thing off top has been very clear. Like, these disclaimers are for white people. Because we're going to say something. <laughs> we're going to say something about white people that's going to ruffle their feathers. Like, nobody really cares if we make if we make fun of, like, if we put a video up of, like, kids fighting or something like that. People are fake offended by that type of shit. But, like, offending white people is really, like, a criminal offense if you're trying to get ad dollars. You know what I'm saying? So, like... That's I feel like that's what every disclaimer we have ever used in our entire career has been for. for and that. it's also good marketing for the show because yeah. you might just you might have just literally watched a show about child soldiers running around with AK 47s yeah. and Powerpuff Girl book bags, <laughs> and then our show comes out. They're like, "Yo, you're about to see something wild." And you're like, "Yo, I just wilder saw than that? how much wilder could what they're about." And then you see it, and at the end of our show, you're like, "Yeah, that was wild. That was pretty wild. That was a lot." I, can you tell me something safe? Show me that. Show me that show where they were smuggling gas through the rainforest again. <laughs> I want to feel a safe space. You know, I I love how white people and the way you talk about them come off as like you guys are in a different country. So you're two Bronx guys sitting in Williamsburg, mm-hmm. which let's face it, once you go out the front doors, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but Peter, Peter are, restaurants galore. It's almost the way Margaret Mead talks about people in Samoa. Mm-hmm. You're talking about white people, like the, the way they talk and the way they live and the way they dress, and Everything else in America, everything else in American, you know, cultural products is geared toward white people. Yes. Because yeah. that's, that's the default. That's like America's default is white people. That, you so know that's what I mean? A lot of the controversy and like quote unquote complaints we would get in the beginning of the show were why do you keep saying white so much? Why do you keep like, everything out your mouth is white people this, white people that, white people this. And what people don't realize is a large portion of our show, a large portion of our show rather is it's. A othering of white people. For ev- for example, on TV, you always see, sometimes even on Viceland, if you see black people, they're on TV with closed captioning, you know, captions, subtitles underneath them, or they're being explained, or they're being studied as this, oh, what do these people do? Oh. Like, how do they live? And when you come to our show, it's like, no, we are the default people in our universe. Yeah. You guys are the other, and now we're going to study you, and we're going to do to you on this show what you guys do to us on maybe 99% of the other programming on TV. And it's just so jarring for people because people are just, like, even, quote, I'm going to use a problematic term here, even good, good white people, good East Coast liberals, they get offended at the show because they're like, I'm white and I don't do that. Why would you say that? And it's just like, Bro, if damn, if it doesn't apply to you, what are you getting yeah. upset for? If it don't apply, let it fly. You know, like, don't, like, is it that jarring to, and people write, and they're just like, you know, it was my white privilege, I had to check it because I was getting, I, you know, it was honestly bothering me. It was, certain things you were saying was were bothering me, and I'm just like, why is this bothering you? And if you take it at face value, it seems just like a lot of cursing and hip-hop and two guys from the Bronx, but when you actually break it down to, like, the bone, you know, the bone marrow, this, it's a pretty intelligent show. We try to be intelligent and talk about smart things in a smart way. Yeah. Deezus and Mero, it's been fun. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Be sure to catch us on uh, Deezus and Mero. Deezus and Mero. You can check out their series on Viceland Monday through Thursday nights at 10 p.m. And you can check out their podcast, The Bodega Boys. Just use your favorite podcast app. It's Bullseye. In for Jesse Thorne, I'm Ray Suarez. My next guest is Walter Murch. He's one of the great sound designers in film, and he's an editor, too. You've seen, or heard, I guess, his work on American Graffiti, The English Patient, The Conversation. He's also the subject of a new book, Lawrence Weschler's Waves Passing in the Night. It's a profile of Murch's other great passion in life, astrophysics. Murch spends a good deal of his free time reading up on that subject, He's even become a champion of sorts for a theory once thought long dead. He's also found common ground between the solar system and his day job, finding musical harmony in the orbits of planets, for example. When he's working, he collaborates most often with Francis Ford Coppola. Murch worked on all three Godfather films and, as you'll hear in a second, Apocalypse Now. Here's a clip from one of the film's most iconic scenes. Put on Cywar up, make it loud. And the Romeo Fox cry, shall we dance? (laughs) 
Walter Murch, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Every time I watch that scene, I wonder if it's as complicated to design the sound for as it looks like. It was a, the, it was the most complicated of all the scenes in Apocalypse Now. I think there were like 260 individual tracks uh, for the helicopters and the AK-47s and the 50 caliber machine guns and the music, of course, and the dialogue. And uh, it, it was complicated. And this was this was all before digital. Everything had to be analog. So you can if you can stretch your mind back in the past, you can imagine what it was like. It's also a reminder of kind of how we watch movies. Uh, when the eye is taking in all the images that are on the screen, the sounds have to somewhat match up with that. But you're also telling people things they're not even consciously aware of while That's they're watching. That's true, and, and especially with a scene like that, which is so dense with sound, um, what we found that we had to do was to actually limit the amount of information that we were giving at any one moment, you know, for like every three or four seconds, we could only feed the audience the music and the helicopters and a little bit of dialogue. But if we also added in all of the um, the machine gun fire and the artillery explosions, it would just collapse into a big ball of noise. So the, what we wanted to do was give the impression that everything was happening at the same time, but to do that, we had to not show everything at the same time. And seconds later, almost bizarrely, the sound of the surf has to come in there. That's right. Yep. You have sort of bridged eras. You, know, you mentioned the, uh, the tools that are available today. I'm wondering if in a movie made that long ago, you, were, you had more in common with a Foley man doing radio in, uh, in a 1940s studio in Radio City in New York than a sound editor does today. Well, actually, the Foley, which you mentioned, is the live recording of sound effects where the sound effects editors are looking at the picture as they're making the sound, and we still do that today. That That is uh, almost completely unchanged from the way we used to do it almost 100 years ago. When I've talked to people who've worked in the past on sound, in the old days, they talk about sound as a, a very physical thing. Blocks of wood, um, dropping shot pellets inside a metal tube to create, you know, using the, using the physical world. We do that. Has the, have the machines changed the discipline? Yeah, well, the the thing that's changed is what we record onto. So we're making the sounds pretty much the same way that we made it in the past, but we're recording it digitally, and we can effortlessly combine many different recordings, and then we can squeeze the sounds and chop them into little bits and slow them down and turn them upside down much more easily than we could in the past with analog recording. But you're still building them in yeah. the physical world? Uh, well, we're, we're looking at computer screens and we're looking at, uh, it's kind of like looking at the tapestry of a rug. We, we have these lines of colors, only in this case it's lines of sounds, and we want those sounds to integrate with each other to create a beautiful pattern that also relates, as you said, to what the people are looking at on the screen. One thing that's changed a lot is the sound reproduction inside theaters. Has that forced you, almost like an arms race, to keep up when, in the way that you make sounds for movies? Because now the speakers and the immersive aspect of it and, and the reproduction is just so fabulous. Yes, and you actually touched on an interesting point, which is that in uh, certainly in Apocalypse Now and, and films that I work on, what I do is, is ahead of time look at the landscape of the film, so to speak, and make decisions about where I'm going to use this these multi-speaker arrays and also where I can afford to completely back off that and have the soundtrack simply be mono, you know, just one speaker. And then where I can expand to have maybe three speakers, and then 
at the right moment, expand to five or seven or nine or, or whatever it happens to be, because people appreciate, in the best sense of that word, they they can feel when things are changing. If If you made a film, which is all channels all the time, after a while, people's ears get used to that, and so you're doing all this work, and after a while, their ears just say, so what? So what what is good is to find a way to sculpt the architecture of the sound so that in keeping with what the dramatic part of the scene is doing, that we are, the sound uh, is, uh, conforming in very interesting ways to uh, what's being shown on screen so that the ears of the audience don't get overly fatigued. We'll continue my conversation with Walter Murch after a short break. Turns out there's an explanation for why Marlon Brando sounded the way he did in the movies, and it wasn't really as strange as you might think, but it was really, really cool. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Kia Nero with the launch of Kia's first-ever ground-up hybrid crossover. Like all Kia models, Nero comes with an industry-leading 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty program, a testament to its outstanding quality and reliability. Discover the new, technologically advanced Kia Nero, a smarter kind of crossover. All warranties and roadside assistance are limited. See retailer for details or go to kia.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Ray Suarez, in for Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my interview with sound designer Walter Murch in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show here on Maximum Fun. Every week, Pop Rocket brings you a fascinating and funny conversation about all things pop culture. It's all hosted by the comedian Guy Branham. Hey, Guy, what's going on in Pop Rocket this week? This week, we are talking about legal dramas. The Good Fight on CBS has us all excited about TV lawyers. And so we're going to talk about our favorite ones, from Claire Huxtable all the way to uh, Jim Carrey. Sounds good. Pop Rocket. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Ray Suarez. My guest is Walter Murch, the sound designer who worked on the Godfather trilogy, The English Patient, Apocalypse Now, and much more. He's also the subject of a new book, Waves Passing in the Night, chronicling his research in astrophysics. I've had the opportunity, accidentally almost, from time to time, to see movies shot in the outdoors. And the sound that you see in a movie theater isn't anything like what you see when you're watching a scene being shot on the street. For example, I watched John Travolta walk down 86th Street in Brooklyn, in the opening that became the opening sequence of Saturday Night Fever. There was a lot going on there, but in fact, the actual sound of the street and him making his way down the street and getting his pizza and all of that is pretty ordinary. Are, are you, in, in a way, lying to tell the truth? Yes, that's, uh, I think Picasso came out with that uh, aphorism. Uh, you know, art is a lie that tells the truth, and that's exactly what we're doing. We we are doing very complicated things to make the sound seem normal. If if we actually showed the the real sound that there was at the time of shooting, people would simply not accept it. And it's just it's one of the uh, one of the facts of our profession, which even involves, I'm guessing, eliminating the real sounds that are happening oh, around yeah. you. Yes, absolutely. It, it's artistry is uh, half of artistry is what you choose to eliminate uh, more than almost sometimes more than what you choose to add. If you're just joining us, I'm with Walter Murch, Oscar winning film editor and sound designer and the subject of a book called Waves Passing in the Night by Lawrence Wexler. And this is your other life, really, as a um, an amateur in the best sense, in the in the 18th and 19th century sense of the word. Yes, amateur means the lover, the, the one who loves. And I do love uh, the subject of this book, which is uh, astrophysics and cosmology and, and thinking about those things. I, I'm almost hesitant to try to distill what you're describing 
for a general audience that hasn't read in on astrophysics in advance. Let alone trying to do it on the radio. Yeah, right. <laughs> could you could you give us a, a thumbnail so at least everybody starts in the same place? Yeah. When I'm working on a film, uh, I'm working 12 or 14 hours a day, and when I'm trying to get some sleep, I want to go as far away from film as possible so that I can just stop thinking about it for a while. And my drug of choice is science books, biology, cosmology, uh, astrophysics, physics. And this uh, this uh, has its effect on me. And, and I was working on a film in England about 23 years ago, and I learned about something called Bode's Law. And this was an 18th century observation that was made by actually two uh, astronomers. And it was a very simple piece of what you might say is almost ninth grade mathematics. It's a, it's a little algorithm, a little formula uh, that has an exponential value in it. And when you chuck various integers into this formula, you get a series of numbers uh, coming out the other end. And the relationship of these numbers to each other is uncannily like the relationship of the distances of the planets from the sun. And uh, at the time that it was formulated, it fit everything that we knew. This is in the mid-18th century. And then, tantalizingly, as we began to discover new planets, these new planets also fit the empty spaces in this in this formula. So people at that point sort of rolled over and said, okay, this must be a law. We don't know why it is, but it fit the uh, needs of a scientific law, which is to be both descriptive of what we know and then predictive of things that we don't yet know. But as these things come in, they, they fill the bill. I don't know much about science itself, but I do know a lot about the history of science mm-hmm. and how much of it is told not by experts, not by people who were dedicated to a single-minded pursuit of a vocation from the time they were young, but people who were curious, tinkerers, people who tried things out over and over again till they got something to work. And it it almost seems like you, you know, with your day job, your accolades, your successful career, uh, shelves full of awards, uh, are more in the in the tradition of those old tinkerers and inquirers than yeah. the people who are doctors of astrophysics at universities. Well, yes, I, I, I agree. Uh, that's certainly true um, in the past, probably more true in the past than it is today. But here I am absolutely throwing myself on the barricades. And, and in a sense, I'm allowed to do that, or uh, I'm lucky to be able to do that because I do have a day job. And this is my uh, what I choose to do uh, with some of my spare time is investigate these things down down this particular rabbit hole. And there are lots of side branches of this uh, study that uh, are fascinating in themselves. But you're absolutely true, right, that a lot of breakthroughs happen because of people just tinkering. Joseph Priestley, the uh, who was a cleric in the 18th century was the person credited with the discovery of oxygen. As it actually turned out, though, he uh, was experimenting uh, with uh, living things, and he would take a glass bell, a glass jar, and put it over a mouse, and he would come back two days later, and the mouse would be dead. And then he tried the same thing with a plant. He put a glass dome over the plant, and two or three days later, the plant would be dead. And then he had this genius idea, what would happen if I put the mouse and the plant together? And he came back two days later, and they were still alive, and they were still alive a week later, and they were still alive a month later. And what he understood uh, was that the mouse was exhaling something that the plant needed, and the plant was exhaling something that the mouse needed. And ultimately, this led to the discovery of the, uh, the idea of oxygen. It's Bullseye. I'm Ray Suarez. My guest is Walter Murch, the sound designer who worked on the Godfather trilogy, The English Patient, Apocalypse Now, and much more. He's also the subject of a new book, Waves Passing in the Night, chronicling his research in astrophysics. Let's go back to the movies for a minute. All right. 
as the Castro brothers can probably tell you, if you've got big news to deliver, um, Havana's a great place to do it. Walter Murch, my guest, is known for his work with Francis Ford Coppola on the Godfather trilogy. This scene is from The Godfather Part Two, which came out in 1974. It takes place at a New Year's ball in Havana, Cuba, and Michael Corleone is about to tell his brother Fredo he knows he's betrayed him. There's a plane waiting for us to take us to Miami in an hour. We'll make a big thing about it. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. How do we make sure that we can hear the big band, whoever it is, Perez Prado or whoever's playing in the background, and also hear Al Pacino in the clear and hear what he's got to say? Well, it's that uh, principle I was talking about before with Apocalypse Now, where we had the helicopters and the music and the AK-47s, the M-16s and the artillery and everything is a, uh, you can only call it a, an artistic understanding of the, the focus of attention of an audience. What are, what are they capable of taking in and uh, not to uh, exceed too much uh, any one element? Uh, the, the dialogue in a film really is the spine of the film. You have to understand the dialogue. And that is something that's what we begin every film with is that we uh, do what is called a dialogue premix. And that's taking just the dialogue, uh, no sound effects, no music. And we spend sometimes weeks getting the balance of the dialogue itself correct so that it has the right uh, equalization, it has the right frequencies are all uh, perfectly balanced to give us this possibility of, of really understanding it. And then we start to add these other elements, the sound effects and the music, and uh, kind of like bringing the water up to just to the right level, we will increase the sound effects just to the right level and no further so that we're not impeding the, the dialogue, the understandability of the dialogue. Is there a further level of complication that comes from the actors themselves? Um, Al Pacino has a very different vocal quality from John Cazale, who Fredo, who he's talking yes. to there on the dance floor in Havana. Do you have to compensate for where in the range of uh, of voice yes. actors have their sweet spot? Yeah, absolutely. There's a funny story from Godfather 1 where we were recording some extra dialogue from Marlon Brando, and I was working with Francis Coppola and Marlon in a recording studio, and suddenly Francis uh, looked at his watch and said, well, I, I have to leave. Uh, I think it's going great. You guys finish the film. So suddenly I was alone in the room with Marlon Brando. I was 28 years old or something, and Marlon, Marlon Brando was Marlon Brando. And uh, we finished the, uh, the reel that we had been working on, and then we had to wait five minutes for to put up the next reel. And in the dark, he suddenly said, people say I mumble. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was a hot potato. I sat there for a, a few seconds thinking, what's the right answer? And I said, that's right, they do. They do say you mumble. And he thought for a second, and then he said, they're right, I do mumble. And I'll tell you the reason why. So I was all ears at this point. He said... When we shoot these films, we shoot them out of order. We shoot the last scene first and the middle scene uh, next. And then uh, the first scene we shoot at the end of the movie. And it's all a jumble. And I don't know, in the end, how the real order of these scenes is going to be. Some of the scenes uh, that I think are important get cut out of the film entirely. So as a result, to protect myself, I don't move my lips very much. I just keep my my jaw kind of just moving a little bit when I talk so that when I see the film cut together before it's finished, I can come in and change my dialogue because I, I want to compensate for all of the crazy things that you filmmakers have done to it. 
So that's a that's exactly a version of what you're of what you're talking about. As as a, a piece of uh, acting wisdom. Yeah. Did it make yeah. sense to a young film editor? Oh yeah. No, sure. It uh, it was uh, it, it was a golden piece of information for me. Walter, let's talk about the partnership with a director. Um, do you have to make room for each other when you when you have both complementary and clashing visions of of how a scene's going to go? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the director is the boss. You you have to uh, adhere and try to enhance the vision of the director. And uh, we we are there, we being the, the editors and the costume designers and the actors and the cinematographers are there to figure out what the vision of the director is, either because the director overtly tells us what he wants or we kind of intuit it. And the best kind of relationships, uh, as you can imagine, are a sort of three-legged race where we're tied together working on this film. We're trying to hit all of the budgets and the schedules that uh, are, are present in filmmaking. And we, uh, we have a kind of intuition about what each of us is capable of and what each of us wants. But the ultimate power relationship, if, if a director finally says, you know, I think... I know you've worked hard on this scene, cutting it together, but uh, in the end, I think we just have to cut this scene out. But that's uh, that's the decision that the the director ultimately ultimately makes. But having said that, each director has a very different personality and and way of working. I worked with Fred Zinnemann, uh, the director of High Noon and From Here to Eternity. And he was somebody who started making films in the 1930s based on him getting interested in films in 1916. So almost the entire history of film is present in that stretch of time. And worked, obviously, on a number of films with Francis Coppola and Anthony Minghella and George Lucas and... uh, Phil Kaufman, and uh, these are all uh, have all been wonderful relationships. And uh, but each person is slightly different. Sound designer, film editor, and astrophysicist Walter Murch. Great to talk to you. Okay, very good to talk to you. Thank you, Walter Murch. The book about his forays into astrophysics is called Waves Passing in the Night. It's by Lawrence Weschler, and it's a great read. Check it out at your local independent bookstore. Amazon, or wherever you buy books. Every week we end the program with a quick recommendation, something you could be listening to, watching, or reading. It's called The Outshot. Now, I didn't expect to get reeled in, or maybe yanked in is more like it, to The Young Pope, the HBO limited series that just ended its inaugural run. But there I was, binge-watching sometimes just topping up my tank with a quick one-hour meal at other times. Now, if you think you're going to watch, if you're going to watch the whole series, let me tell you, there are some spoilers ahead. For those of you who stayed well away or didn't even know it was on, here's the quick need to know. The young pope is Jude Law, an American Lenny Bellardo, elected to the papacy at a time very much like our time. Like the title says, he's young. He's really handsome because he's Jude Law. But instead of doing the modern papal thing and jetting around the world and becoming a global sensation, Pope Pius XIII instead withdraws to the tiny city-state of the Vatican, doesn't take selfies, doesn't hug children and old ladies, or preach loving reassurance from the throne of St. Peter in a New York accent. Nope. Pope Pius turns his back on what all kinds of religious figures have been doing for decades, trying to become more knowable, more relatable more immersed in the world, he instead ratchets up an aspect of religion we haven't talked a lot about lately, mystery. I was late because I couldn't find your office. I know, you opened the wrong door and found yourself face to face with some visitors to our museum. Oh, you've been inquiring about me too. It's very difficult to keep anything secret here in the Vatican. Rumors fly so quickly that sometimes they arrive even before the event has taken place. It's quite a useful piece of information for my future. 
which is exactly what it was intended to be, Holy Father. Oh, what is one to do, Monsignor? It's the times. In America, we call it gossip. Here in the Vatican, we call it calumny. Over the course of the ten episodes, we're introduced to Lenny's backstory, his abandonment by hippie parents at an orphanage run by Sister Mary, now an aging Diane Keaton, who is as devoted to the young Pope as she was to Lenny, her young orphan. Across the ten episodes, the sumptuous, gorgeously composed, beautifully imagined work of director Paolo Sorrentino rests on three main pillars— the jangling incongruity of a young, handsome pope who leads the church stomping back into very old ideas about authority, submission, and obedience. The world of the Vatican, even in the modern church, a place of intrigue, backstabbing, score-settling, and constantly shifting alliances, and the young pope's relationship with his crafty secretary of state, Cardinal Voyello, and the backstory of a broken-hearted middle-aged man who now is one of the most famous and influential beings on the planet, who still lives with the pain of a complicated and unresolved childhood. If it sounds like ten pounds of stuff for a five-pound bag, well, yeah, it's packed, and visually arresting, and well-acted, and veering between stilted dialogue and just plain old brilliant writing. In the final episode of the series, Pope Pius XIII sits in a chapel with his one-time mentor, an American cardinal, Michael Spencer, played by James Cromwell, who thought he was going to be the Pope and is still pretty bitter about it. But he's also worried about the future of the Church under an ultra-conservative Pope who's young enough to be in the chair for decades. The two men argue about the Pope's recent ruling that there would be no forgiveness, no absolution for women who get an abortion, and their conversation was full of religious history, legalism, and riveting confrontation. God isn't for you, Lenny. God is for men who have no use for freedom. You're wrong about abortion. You're spreading a sorrow you don't even understand. And that's the worst thing a human being can do. You've made the kind of mistake that should have been avoided at all cost. Introducing concepts that taken by themselves are true, but which, when lumped together, constitute a system that's overly rigid. When it comes to abortion, rigidity is the only option. There's no getting around it. It's a crime. Forbidden and punished in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. You know that. In that same episode... Pope Pius heads to Venice at Christmas time, in a sudden about-face, decides to celebrate Mass in front of the world-famous St. Mark's Basilica, with the main square of the watery city packed with the faithful, who've had few opportunities to see this Pope. And after months of stern, uncompromising, even angry scolding, Lenny Bellardo opens his arms to the world. God does not allow himself to be seen. God does not shout. God does not whisper. God does not write. God does not hear. God does not chant. God does not comfort us. And all the children asked her, Who is God? And Juana replied, God smiles. And only then did everyone understand. Then, this complicated, rigid arch-conservative with a broken heart grabs his chest and falls backwards. He thinks he may have seen his now elderly parents among the congregants in St. Mark's Square. He's in pain, but he's not dead, which leaves open the possibility of a lot more young Pope.
That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by The Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 